0: Find something for everyone on your list, whether it's a Cabernet for your sis, sparkling wine for a coworker, or a single barrel bourbon for dad. And if you need any help, just ask one of their friendly guides for advice. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, you'll always find what you love and love what you find. Only at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly, be 21. Hi, I'm Kristen McGlory, lifelong genius hunter. For a decade, I've been unearthing the recipes that have changed the way we cook. Now, on the Genius Recipe Tapes, we go behind the scenes with the geniuses themselves. This week, I'm talking with Daniela Galarza, the staff writer for The Washington Post, where she writes the Eat Voraciously newsletter four days a week. Every day, it includes a simple, one-pan dinner-in-moments kind of weeknight recipe, but also thoughtful commentary, and a whole lot of practical advice and substitutions, too. It's like getting a great recipe in your inbox from a really good friend every day. I love it. Daniela and I also talked about the power and meaning of the words that we use to describe food that we're not yet familiar with, and how to have productive conversations on the internet, which is much easier than it sometimes might seem. But first, here's Daniela on some of the most genius recipes that she has come across lately for her newsletter.
1: You know, something I wrote about recently, which probably you've come across as the cold French, cold French fry method. And I wrote about that and, you know, it's not new. A lot of places have covered it. It's been published, you know, probably a thousand times, but I didn't realize how, you know, still a lot of people weren't familiar with it or weren't familiar with the process. And the funny thing about it for me is just, it, that's just how my parents fry, made French fries. And like, I... made french fries kind of a lot growing up in hindsight like um probably once a week we had homemade french fries and I didn't realize what a treat that was until, until until I grew up and was like oh making french fries is annoying um but it was just how my dad did it and I didn't like ever really think about it until I started reading about all these different methods and the double fry and the you know Belgian style and all of that. And so, um, yeah, writing that was kind of fun because it was just like, uh, easy and, and you always find people that haven't heard of it before. And like none of my colleagues had tried it before. So I convinced them.
0: (laughs) Even if you have heard of it, it's still kind of hard to get over the hurdle of like, yeah, but that's still frying on a weeknight. Yeah. But I want to do that, but maybe I'm not going to do it anytime soon to be able to speak from your experience that like, yeah, you can just do it anytime What, what would your parents usually serve it with? So,
1: yeah, I don't know if this is like a Puerto Rican thing or what, but my dad would make them for breakfast or brunch and we would have them in lieu of like hash browns or breakfast potatoes. So we had a lot of like eggs, bacon and French fries. And (laughs) honestly, it's an awesome way to wake up. I highly recommend it.
0: (laughs) Any other like things that you've discovered in the course of researching and writing the column, maybe from the post archives or elsewhere?
1: there are all these ways to sort of work around people's problems in the kitchen. And that's something I love about working at the post is we get like, we're able to interact with readers. I'm sure just as you are at food 52, just really able to figure out like what are like, it's almost like if there was a, I don't know, like a chart, I'm imagining like an Excel sheet of like all of the potential problems. And then you can somehow like, there's like all of these potential solutions to them and um, I like figuring that out. Like maybe I, I don't. I don't think of myself as particularly good at puzzles. Like you're, pro- like, but I think of like people like us that write about food and troubleshoot things and are looking for easy, um, easy way ways out to really annoying cooking conundrums. Like as pro, like puzzle solvers.
0: Yeah, I think we secretly good puzzlers. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's inherent to what we do every day. Yeah. Yeah is there a, a good example of that that you would want to talk about I noticed in the pesto newsletter that it kind of just started from that place of feedback on a previous pesto recipe that you had shared. yeah
1: yeah I mean this that that's certainly a great yeah a great like positive example of like I want to clarify like I only write one new recipe per week and the other three recipes are from the archives and because as you know, producing new recipes is a lot of work, testing it and everything else and like producing the photographs and all of that. And so it's, it would be kind of crazy to try to do that four times a week, I think, um, if I was like just doing it on all on my own. But um, yeah, so I pull things out of our archives, there's, you know, almost 10,000 recipes in there. And a lot of them are great as is and maybe just need you know a new maybe they haven't found an audience in a really long time and so I think it's a good way for us to refresh what we've got in our archives and I found this mustard green and pecan pesto recipe that Julia Tertian um wrote for us a while back probably at least five years ago and I loved it I mean she has a great way of explaining how to be versatile with cook your cooking and how to adapt it to your tastes. And I've been a fan of hers for a long time. And also I think of pesto, i I guess I've always thought of pesto as this like naturally flexible thing. You know, it's sort of, it's like a pick your own or like choose your own adventure, you know, five ingredients, like, any green, any nut, any cheese, any oil, like how many different ways can you mix this up? And um, I recently had like a text exchange with a friend who was like, what if you did cilantro and then like chili oil and like ginger? And we were just, we were going back and forth about that. But um, for the pesto, after I wrote about it, um, I got all these emails from people who were like, that's not pesto. Like, how dare you call that pesto? Um, And I, I respect when people are really, uh, like passionate about something, but usually I'm kind of put off by it. Usually I'm like, oh, can you just like, let us be like, (laughs) kind of like, let me live. Like, it's just pesto. Like things don't have to be so prescriptive. Um, but then I realized like, you know, I haven't actually made traditional Genoese pesto in probably years. I think of it as this super expensive thing. Like I, when I Mm want to make pesto, I'm like, okay, I've got to like budget like $20 for ingredients. Like it's like really good Parmesan cheese is so expensive. And then like basil, you've got, you need like so much basil and, um, olive oil. You need so much olive oil and then pine nuts. Oh my God. Pine nuts are so expensive. So, um, so anyway, so we had been talking in the office about, or like on our zoom meetings, um, at work about how we don't have maybe like a traditional traditional pesto recipe and I was like oh I'll do it because I was like oh if I do it I can expense all the ingredients um so it was a totally selfish like a selfish (laughs) thing on my part shout out to my editors thanks for letting me do it um and (laughs) I made like five different recipes of pesto like from Marcella Hazan's cookbook and like Pellegrini's book and, um, Cucina Italiana and like, you know, whatever. I went through all the like old, the silver spoon, like the old Italian classics. And I fell in love with Pesto again, I think is what came out of that. And where I was like, oh my gosh, the readers were right. The readers were right. Sometimes tradition is best.
0: (laughs) There's a lot of, of great conversations that come out of disagreements like that. Um, but for you to put it in the newsletter so prominently, that you know you you got this feedback, and like it sort of like you you came around to that perspective in your own way as well, even if you didn't completely agree with it to see that sort of um flexible back and forth instead of a really like like you know a stalemate like often happens on the internet was very refreshing,
1: yeah, no, I'm glad you saw that. I appreciate that. I think I ended that column just with a note, like like even though maybe today traditional Genoese basil pesto is my favorite. Probably tomorrow I'll be making some riff on it again. But um, I think that's kind of the beauty of any living cuisine is that it's never done. It's never like, this is the end all be all. This is the only way you can make this. No one ever will make it differently. Everyone who makes it, who changes it is wrong. Like, I just, I think that that's just, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's really limiting and also just doesn't express the fact of what what it is to be human and live in a living culture like it's not like we're not all constantly changing ourselves and what we're eating and how we're interacting with other people and our ideas are fluid and I think we need to accept that too
0: hey it's Kristen if you are enjoying this chat with Daniela as much as I did head over to the genius recipe tapes and hit subscribe so you don't miss out on other stories like this one Or, like our recent conversation with Solejo and Justin Phillips, hosts of the San Francisco Chronicles Extra Spicy podcast about the food news that has been burning them up most right now, and the one, and hopefully only, rat bar. Yes, rat bar. In the second half of this episode, we will get to hear more from Daniela about the food word that we should really be thinking about more critically, and how to talk about it productively, both online and in real life. Meet you back here for that. recently wrote an article about the implications of using the word exotic. So can you share with us what the backstory is first of the recipe that kind of led to that article happening?
1: Sure. Yeah. As I said, um, the newsletter publishes three archived recipes a week and and then one that I develop. And the first time, well, I guess early on, probably by week three, I wrote about a um, pantry ramen recipe. It was called pantry ramen on our website. It was a recipe that Ed, that the chef Edward Lee had shared with us during the pandemic, early, the early days of the pandemic, when people were looking for pantry-friendly recipes. And it was a really great story that um, it was part of. We had reached out to a number of, of chefs and food personalities just to ask them how they were handling things, what they relied on when they cooked at home, Um, and he was one of the chefs that was like, I cook in my restaurants all the time. Suddenly I'm home. Like, what am I, you know, I don't know what I'm making. I'm not really prepared either. And I thought that was really touching. Um, but I also thought his recipe for ramen, um, is something he grew up, the way he makes it is something, you know, the way he grew up with it, which he has a Korean background and he puts coconut milk to enrich the broth and he also adds um a little bit of curry powder and a slice of american cheese on top and i just love this idea of like making it creamy making it comforting especially it was still cold when i wrote about this and in most of the u.s and i um also thought it was like it's only seven ingredients takes only seven minutes to make like who wouldn't want this in their repertoire um And so I was super surprised when I got some emails that I thought were... I I initially, when I read them, I thought some of them were offensive. I felt like readers were putting down um, this dish and similar dishes that I guess they, from their perspective, were using ingredients they would not keep in their pantries or in their refrigerators, and they maybe didn't know where to find them. And they kept saying things like you're using exotic ingredients. Can you stop? Can you start using more normal ingredients? Can you use ingredients that a normal person would use? And they kept using this dichotomy between like exotic and normal. And I was so confused by it because I don't, yeah, I like didn't know what they meant. And I also obviously want to help them. But I also was like, why am I like, you sort of like taken aback by this or sort of shocked at this, this word Like, why is it rubbing me the wrong way? And I like wanted to dive into that.
0: It seems like there are two or at least two different issues that this brought up, both like the implications of the word exotic itself, and then also the pushback from readers about cuisines and ingredients that are unfamiliar to them. As you were kind of like unpacking this and and researching it, Um, did, were those the two threads that kind of emerged for you too? And how related were they, um, or, or were they kind of separate things?
1: Like if they, I kept thinking, like if they had used a word like rare ingredient, would I have known what that meant or unusual or hard to find? Like, would that have described it sufficiently for, for me? Like they, these emails weren't specific. They were talking, it started after the ramen recipe, but it continued on, and it, it happened, I guess, like, you know, I think I can say like after recipes that called for harissa or chili oil, or um, even like saffron. And I think you can generalize and say, like, these, the, this is coming, it, it like seemed very much like it's coming from um, a dominant white perspective or viewpoint, right? And but i didn't want to assume that about these readers because i don't want to assume anything about readers um you know i i i want to assume my readers are like my friends like they're from all over and they have different experiences and like what's exotic to them or different to them is not going to be to me and vice versa right um so i think that the issue i settled on was not so much that i needed to like i wasn't i'm not interested in Kind of writing a newsletter or only publishing recipes that I think is going to cater to this, um, kind of nebulous idea of like what what are what are our dominant readers are or like what the majority of my readers want. I think that that that's really hard to ascertain, um, you know, unless I like directly ask them to fill out a survey or something. And even then, like it's voluntary. Who knows? So I just hope it's reaching an audience that is curious and that that. I wanted to dive into the usage of the word and what that what it means today, why we still use it, how we use it, and if it's um, if it's actually descriptive enough to be still to to be using.
0: And you mentioned in the article that um, this led to some productive conversations with the readers who were uh, pushing back.
1: About fifty percent of the conversations I had with readers or I tried to have with readers just like ended, like they didn't keep responding to me. But then the other half, readers came back and really thought about it and were like, you know, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't be using that word. I was talking to my son-in-law and he said, chili oil isn't exotic. Like I need to rethink my usage of this word. I just, I I got a number of readers that like really thought about it and were like, I take that back. Like maybe I just need to look harder in my grocery store. And that was super refreshing and cool. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, as I was researching the piece, I was talking to some sociologists and professors, and they were even like surprised that I was doing this. They were like, "Why would people still use this word at all?" And I was like, "Ah, oh, yeah, I think you're maybe <laughs> like not realizing, you know." <laughs> and so I've I've heard from them since the piece was published about how the comments on that piece really struck them as surprising. They they thought that that word had been retired already. In fact.
0: When you're having those conversations, um, I love that they were productive and that they they like sparked an actual dialogue and an actual thought. And I was wondering if you have any tips um, for how to have those conversations, you know, if they come up in our own lives, um, that can lead to more understanding.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I like to go into conversations like that with just as open a mind as I can, and 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 hope and like trust that the other person is coming at it from that place too. I think we all have our own preconceived notions and biases and um, I don't know I, I, I think it's important to just like think really critically about the, what kind of world we want to live in and what kind of language we want to use to describe it and whether or not that language is in the service of living an open life and, 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 accepting life and sort of being a humanist, or if it's in the service of sort of closing our doors and closing our minds to those, to like new ideas or new people or new cultures and, or like new to us. Um, and so I just, yeah, I just try to understand, like, you know, if they're, if they're coming to me and saying harissa is an exotic ingredient to me, Um, I just want to know is that because they find it hard to find is that because they don't like it is that because it comes from a culture that they're not um familiar with or want to be familiar with and usually it's just that they don't know about it and it's more a conversation about like oh my gosh if you like smoky flavors and you like spice like you'll love this it's this incredible sauce it's used in the Middle East it's great for marinades and like I think people that are interested in food in particular can get excited really easily about things like that if you present it in a way that's like exciting because I think that's what f- food that's new to me is ultimately.
0: Exciting and, and welcoming and, and it sounds like very non-judgmental. nonjudgmental. That, that probably also helps them meet you where you are too. Yeah, yeah.
1: I don't want to assume anything about them. And, you know, even if they've assumed something about me, I think it's important to show that I'm always questioning my own preconceived notions and biases and like initial judgments uh, and trying to not make them really, you know, like trying to to be as open and and forthright as I can about what I don't know um, as much as what I can share.
0: Just for, for people who maybe haven't read the article yet, and they definitely should to get all of your perspective and all of the perspectives that you gathered from all of the the research that you did and the conversations that you had. I'm curious if there was like one or two things that you really wish that everyone who um, is questioning, like, why do we care about using the word exotic? Why, why should it matter whether I, I say it or not? What would you like for them to know?
1: I don't know when I stopped using the word exotic. I could I could probably say, like, probably sometime in my life I have used that word um, to describe food or something. I know I have been called exotic um, personally myself, and I think that's why I started to think more critically about it because I was like, why are some things called exotic but not other things? And so, like, today we only use the word primarily to describe plants, animals, um, plants, and I'll include like f- food in that, but like food that we eat, like f- fully formed dishes. So like plants and fruits too, um, animals, women really, 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 it's only like, Oh, like mo- a lot of models are considered exotic and definitely people call women from certain places exotic and then food. And I, I think that got me thinking like, well, there's something more to this, you know, like, like why, like we would call, um, you know, there's no, there's not a lot of other words that are limited to those, those things. And so to me, and then I started reading a lot about the usage of it in, on people. And that led me to this down this like really long history, deep dive into how the word is came from the Greek. And it it originated during a time when, um, the Greek crusades were happening and the Greek um, conquerors were kind of otherizing the people that they were conquering, because that was a different time. And that's just what people did. And, you know, they just there was just a lot of, um, ju- you know, do- dominating other people, judging other people in the process, sort of putting people down. The English adopted it, the English, French and the Spanish adopted the u- u- word. And if you look at like Merriam-Webster's history of the usage of the word, like it's like, not used a lot, not used a lot. And then British imperialism and colonialism European colonialism starts and it's just like skyrocketing and it and and it was fascinating to me to see this um you know this this you could like mirror it on top of history like there's really a reason why people wanted to start using that word to describe other people and things from other places and I um I also found it interesting that it wasn't used so much um, to disc- today to describe food from South America or, or Central America, but it's still primarily used um, on food in, uh, from Asia and Africa. And I um, talked to some people about whether or not there are similar words in other languages. And so like a lot of the critique of this piece is that, okay, m- you know, me, let's see me, I-, I am a person that grew up in Chicago and maybe I will think the first time I see sushi, for example, that that is exotic because I've never seen it before. But a Japanese person who's grown up with sushi will look at a hamburger and say, that's exotic. Well, actually, that's not true because um, they don't have a word that's quite that, that that they would use to describe exotic. The word exotic has been translated into a lot of other languages, but its usage is not the same. And it's interesting to me that um, actually the Japanese are ones that have a they have a word that does that translates as ethnic which is i think like akin to exotic in some ways but they only use it to describe things from that are not japanese not american or not western european um which is also fascinating right it's like we have very clearly identified like what like in the world there's this like dominant culture that gets to sort of label other things and either everyone else goes along with it or i think we question it the fact that we use it on, um, mostly non-human things and women, um, I think is not a coincidence. I think that it was for a long time used to dehumanize and to otherize, um, and to sort of separate people. And I think the less we do of that in the modern world, the better, um, there are other words to use. And there, I think, I think just sort of like approaching it in that way. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with like expressing difference or with saying, you know, I've never seen that before. Oh my gosh. Like, what does it taste like? Or what is it? Or like, you know, or I've never experienced that culture before. Like what, you know, what are some of their, I don't know. I think approaching everything with curiosity and openness is better than, than like a knee jerk, like, Oh, it's weird. You know, like there's that phrase, like don't yuck on anyone's yum. And I think exotic, Mm -hmm. even if, the intention is to express excitement or um, curiosity. It carries with it a tinge of like otherizing, dehumanizing, um, separating, and there are better ways of of expressing ourselves. I think.
0: And what you said in the article about it increasing the metaphysical distance between people too, like, e- even if you bring it up in what you think might be a positive context, it immediately distances you from um, the thing or the person that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm like forced to sort of take a step back and imagine what their perspective is. Like I suddenly need to do all this work to translate it for them. And I don't I like not just because I'm a recipe writer, but just like as another human being, if I'm you know, what if I was an expert in I'm not an expert in any cuisine, but what if I was an expert or like, or maybe just like what if as a half Puerto Rican person, I was suddenly assumed to be an expert on Puerto Rican food and therefore needed to translate it in a way that, let's say the dominant white audience would be receptive to it. Like, I just think that whole thing is this like twisting of cultures in a weird way and instead we should be coming across we should be coming out and saying I want to understand that from your perspective like like how can I understand that from your perspective and not in the process like put you down or make you feel like you're weird or make you feel like you're different
0: the only way to to start to change it is just to talk about it in an open way so um, I feel like you're doing a lot uh, to to move that forward, both in writing about it and then also engaging directly with people through your newsletter and through your emails, yeah. <laughs> through your inbox. Yeah, I hope so.
1: You know, I would say too. Like, I think my response to a lot of people who are saying like I didn't intend for it to be offensive. I intended for it to be a positive adjective and. Um, yeah, I really want people to take a step back and think about what that means. Like, I think that means ignoring what the impact of it actually is and what they should be really concerned with is like, not what they feel, but what the person that's hearing it or reading it feels about it. And that's, I think, especially if you care about your audience, like, I, you know, I think all writers do and certainly anyone who's thoughtful and, and sharing an opinion in any format is trying to do is just sort of like, let me put myself in their shoes for a second. And if that wouldn't feel good to me, like maybe I just,
0: you know, find a different way to say it. Thank you so much uh, for for sharing more of your thoughts on this with us and, and taking time to, um, to chat about it with all of our listeners. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And my thanks to Daniela Galarza, staff writer at The Washington Post and their Eat Voraciously newsletter. Our show is put together by Coral Lee, Amy Schuster, and Emily Hanhan. If you have a Genius Recipe to share, maybe from your favorite newsletter, I would always love to hear from you at Genius at 52com And if you like the Genius Recipe tapes and the Food52 Podcast Network, and you want us to keep making it better and better, the very best thing you can do is take a moment to rate us, leave us a review, or even just tell a friend if you haven't already. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon.